Today I'm talking to Robert Stackpole, author of Divine Mercy and Divine Justice. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. Now, you cover a lot of territory in this book, so we're only going to touch on a part of it today and probably discuss other things in future interviews. But in the course of this, you talk about some of the important Catholic principles about war and peace, which are all very relevant in the world in 2022. What are the criteria for a just war? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, needless to say, uh, quite a topical thing right now with war raging and having broken out in Europe. Um, but it's real important for Catholics to remember that the church has some pretty clear and important teachings on uh, on what's called a just war. And, and basically, uh, we can sum it up, I think, as I did in my book with uh, a more general principle, the preferential option for peace, I call it. Uh, and that's simply this, that in any and every conflict situation between human communities, or uh, especially between nation states, uh, the church asks us to seek, first of all, and above all, and especially world leaders, to seek for nonviolent, non-coercive ways of resolving the conflict where such ways can be found, because this is most uh, in accord with, with the dignity of human life, right? War means a widespread killing, and that's generally not in what God wants, and not in accord with the dignity of human life. So resort to force, the use of force, resort, recourse to arms is always a last resort when all other means of resolving a conflict would clearly be impractical and ineffective. Now, this doesn't mean people misunderstand this, Christine, and you know this well, that, that the church's position on the promotion of peace is pacifism or peace at any price. No, that's not what the church teaches. The church, uh, the catechism, for example, and if our listeners want to look this up in the catechism, it would be entries 2307 through 2317. The catechism clearly says that we as individuals and, and nation states as well have a right to defend themselves. And we even have a duty in charity to defend the innocent and relatively helpless against uh, unjust and uh, gross aggression. But if an aggressor is truly relentless and, and non-coercive, non-violent means wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be uh, enough to stop them, then we have a duty to intervene, even militarily if necessary, to stop that grievous injustice and attacks on the dignity of human life. That's that's in a nutshell, that's the Catholic doctrine of a just world. I'll just to finish up my answer to your first question here, I'll just read a, a very small portion from something called the Compendium of the Social Teachings of the Church. Uh -huh. uh, this is entry 500. This is an, a, exactly what it sounds like. The Compendium is a summary statement, uh, several hundred pages long, but a summary statement. Catholic social teaching. It's a vital document really for every uh, well-read Catholic to have on their bookshelves. But here's what it says in entry 500 under the topic legitimate defense. And I quote, war of aggression is intrinsically immoral in the tragic case where war breaks out. Leaders of the state that has been attacked have the right and duty to organize their defense, even using the force of arms. Another, um, they, they write another uh, write this in the same entry at the very end. It's one thing to wage a war of self-defense. It's quite another to seek to seek to impose domination on another nation. Mm -hmm. The possession of war potential does not justify the use of force for political or military objectives. 
nor does the mere fact that war has unfortunately broken out mean that all is fair between warring parties. So you've got two sides that the church teaches. Uh, you have Nations have the right to self-defense against unjust aggression. But secondly, when war breaks out, neither side has a right uh, to do whatever they want. You know, the, the old phrase, all is fair in love and war, is not true, at least as far mm -hmm. as war is concerned, right? Um, it's not true in love either. The duty, the moral duty. Yeah, not true in love, that's right. Uh, but uh, nation states have the duty to do everything they reasonably can to, um, to try to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, to not deliberately target innocent civilians and to uh, to do to deliberately target innocent civilians on an ongoing and uh, wide basis uh, leads to the concept also of what's called genocide of course which is a word that's been thrown out in the news quite a bit recently but that's that's a grave uh, amongst the gravest of moral evils mm -hmm. uh, that the church also condemned okay so then the the church's teaching cuts against kind of our experience of war for about a century and well longer than that i think humans have always been tempted to do anything in the name of a nation anything in the name of a cause right yeah that's uh, that's always the uh, that's always the great temptation um especially if you feel your cause is a just cause mm -hmm. and uh, then you think well that you know the ends justifies the means right uh, because we're we're engaging in just military action. We can do anything, you know. Uh, we can do anything to, to win. We can do anything to bring the war to an end quickly. Obviously, we saw this on display in World War II, right? Mm -hmm. um, certainly uh, for the Nazis who felt their cause was just, it, it wasn't by any objective standard. But nevertheless, because they felt their cause was just, uh, they uh, brutalized the civilian populations that they attacked or under their control. And unfortunately, at the very end of the war, of course, the Allies wanting, understandably wanting to bring a, a world war after five years to an end, uh, they crossed the moral line too with such things as the firebombing of some of the Ger German cities in Dresden, which roasted the, uh, many of the civilian habit inhabitants. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful that uh, uh, just because we're in a, involved in a military conflict we think is just, that doesn't mean that anything goes. Mm -hmm. Why is it that, that that's such a strange thing to hear? Why is it that that sounds like unrealistic, uh, sort of idealistic um, theorizing? How have we come to be trained into the sort of ruthless um, commitment to anything in the name of national security, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's part of the general uh, moral decline of, of um, civilization, really, in, over the last century, Chris. It's, uh, um, you can see people still trying to appeal to these standards, even while they're breaking them. That's mm -hmm. the bizarre thing, right? I mean, they were kind of, it was part of, part of Christendom. Just war theory was something that well, really started with St. Augustine, but it crystallized in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were some serious attempts to stick by it. Um, but of course, people are sinful, and when when uh, war breaks out, it's very easy to to uh, not follow those moral principles. But there was a general consensus in Western civilization that you shouldn't deliberately attack civilians, for example, uh, that you shouldn't just uh, engage in wars of conquest. Uh, but you know, we what we've seen in you know World War One, World War Two, uh, is that with tools such as prop mass propaganda. Mm -hmm. in hand. It's very easy for governments 
to wash over and hide what they're really doing propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a grave temptation that Satan takes advantage. Plus, uh, and then there's the general sense of moral relativism. Well, you know, why can't we do whatever we want in the name of what we think is right? I mean, you know, uh, the ends justifies the means. You know, the greatest good for the greatest number. This is all part of, uh, you know, standard moral decline and moral thinking in the 20th and into the 21st century. So, mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's part of the what I think what Pope John Paul II called uh, the mystery of iniquity, right? Mm -hmm. But it tends to steamroll. It tends to be based on uh, Jesus said that Satan is uh, the father of lies and mm -hmm. the murderer from the beginning. So lies used in the defense of murder yep. are, uh, you know, the, the trademark of Satan. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing that deployed now in this war of, of misinformation, disinformation. A lot of people aren't quite sure which end is up when it comes to the current conflict. But you've just been back. You've, you're just now back in the States from being in Poland for a while. What's the view of all of this closer to the front lines? Well, I think we, we need to uh, realize that um, we, we tend as North Americans to project our political divisions, our political ideologies, our view of the world on people in other parts of the world and think that they are operating on the same uh, worldview that we are, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's simply not the case. If We, we should probably take our cue here from uh, the very uh, devout uh, Catholic president of Poland, mm -hmm. President Andrzej Duda. Uh, and he's been very clear and the Catholics in the area on those states in Central and Eastern Europe have been very clear that what Russia is doing right now is by every Catholic and Christian standard, uh, morally evil. It violates really every Catholic principle of what constitutes a just war. Um, consider this, Ukraine had not attacked Russia. Russia isn't taking up arms in self-defense. Ukraine was no imminent threat to Russia. Even if it was on the verge of joining NATO, which is a, a propaganda lie spread by the Russians, in fact, it wasn't, the, Ukraine's application to join NATO was blocked by several European countries. Um, there's no just cause here for invading the whole country. Maybe if Russia had limited itself to the so-called liberation of the two small eastern, far eastern provinces of Ukraine, which overwhelmingly Russian speaking and seemed over the last decade or so to want to be uh, independent of Ukraine, maybe there'd be some uh, remote just cause there, but certainly there's nothing that justifies the invasion, bombing of a whole country, the attempt to take over the whole country. Um, this is an unjust war of aggression, a moral crime of the highest order. Um, but in addition to that, and, and I think what's what's in the news on you know on people's TV screens now, is that Russia is hardly engaging justly in the execution of this war either, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Not only is there no attempt by Russian forces to minimize civilian casualties. In fact, their strategy seems to be in many areas of the country to maximize civilian casualties as much as possible, to break the will of the Ukrainians to resist. Yeah. And um, this, uh, when when done on a widespread basis, as I think is happening now, uh, well, we need to remember two things. First of all, not the first time Vladimir Putin has done this. I hear com Western commentators say, oh, now we see Putin uh, shows us his real colors. Well, that's ludicrous. 15 years ago, Putin uh, stopped uh, the independence of the 
uh, the country of Chechnya by doing the very same thing he's attempting to do to the Ukrainians now, by, by reducing the major cities of Chechnya to rubble through missile attacks, causing massive civilian casualties, and ultimately it, it worked. The whole country, uh, it was essentially genocide, but nobody was paying attention. Chechnya was a little place that nobody had ever heard of, and the cameras weren't there. But now people are seeing, <laughs> you know, what, what Putin has already done. In fact, the um, and Chris, it was you who, who uh, very kindly put me onto this, that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic, um, the, the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, that's the Eastern Rite Catholics in the Ukraine, uh, Eastern Rite Christians who are in communion with uh, the See of Rome. Their Archbishop, Archbishop Shevchuk, has declared that what's happening uh, just in the city of Mariupol, Mariupol um, is, is, qualifies as genocide. Um, I, sadly, the Mariupol, of course, in Ukrainian means city of Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, here's what he said. Today, we empathize with the city of Mariupol, where real genocide is taking place. People are dying not only from enemy weapons, but also from hatred. Hundreds of people are dying, not only in the city, but also in its environs of hunger, as well as of bloodshed. And people will know this, even from what's been reported by uh, by the press, the bombs are falling not only on in Ukrainian forces, mm -hmm. but on uh, on a maternity clinic where uh, many were killed, and women giving, you know, in in labor and giving birth were killed. Uh, on art schools sheltering hundreds of residents, a theater where hundreds of women and children were others had uh, were directly targeted and hit by Russian missiles. This is indiscriminate bombing of a whole population. The a, a doctor I saw interviewed on TV from one of the hospitals there said 80% of the people coming in uh, with uh, of the casualties and people coming in are, are civilians um, to that hospital. So uh, this really does uh, qualify, I think, uh, genocide, because it's not just happening in Mariupol. It happened in, in uh, the city, the second largest city in Kharkiv. Uh, and um, I think these are object lessons about President Putin is showing what he is prepared to do elsewhere in the country if Ukraine doesn't give in. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, a very grim uh, situation. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very grieved because uh, you actually I dodged your question a bit because you said, what do people in uh, that part of the world, you know, especially Catholics in that part of the world, they're very clear that uh, despite all uh, the talk about Christian values and something that, that come out of Vladimir Putin's mouth, that uh, this is a world leader who uh, has no interest in such things at all. Mm -hmm. um, and that's clear. With every world leader, you judge them not primarily not by what they say, but what they do. And uh, Vladimir Putin, Putin has a long track record. He's been in ruling Russia for 20 years now. Long, long track record of violating human rights, of um, uh, wars of aggression. Uh, it, it's um, a very grim record indeed. And, and people in that area of the world have no, um, no illusions about what uh, what they're dealing with in Vladimir Putin and what he's and what he's up to. Okay. So then, does it does it add to the moral gravity of the situation that he is trying to cloak this in some form of Christianity? Oh, uh, for sure. I think it does. It's a, a, a insult to the name of Christ, uh, which actually uh, Putin used. He he 
um, cited Jesus in his talk in a stadium rally mm -hmm. uh, back, and, and I thought, boy, this is this is really border morally sick as it gets, right? Uh, here's the same guy who's ordering direct mass attacks on civilians. Um, but you know, that's some so some of the Western news media is trying to give the devil his due, so to speak, and saying, well, you know, didn't Russia have some legitimate concerns? Uh, shouldn't we take, you know, Russia isn't necessarily the total bad guy here. You know, shouldn't we uh, uh, take those on board and not, you know, rush to conclusions? Uh, uh, I, I think it's all, unfortunately, uh, not necessarily a deliberate smokescreen, but a, a, a blurring of moral vision uh, because of the Russian propaganda machine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the first thing that people say that you hear is that, well, Russia was legitimately concerned that Ukraine was about to join NATO. And this would put, you know, NATO right on Russia's border and be considered a threat to them. So they obviously they had to do something. Well, this is false on so many levels. I don't know where to begin. First of all, there are already members of NATO on Russia's border and have been for a long time. Poland borders on Russia. Uh, Estonia and Latvia border on Russia. So it's not a, a not a case that you now here is a country you're now going seeking to join NATO, who's going to be on the borders of Russia. Um, as I said before, it wasn't going to happen anyway, because there were several European countries who were blocking Ukraine's application, in particular Germany and Hungary, strongly opposed to it. Uh, Putin, if he was really concerned about that, could have negotiated. Um, President Biden went over just a few weeks before the war started and, and said, we're open to negotiation on the whole NATO issue. They, he could have negotiated something in which the international law is called guaranteed neutrality, mm -hmm. right? Where a country's neutrality is guaranteed by all sides, all the parties around it, right? So that if any party around it violates neutrality, then the other countries have a right to step in and defend that country, right? Mm -hmm. So in place of NATO, they could have, Ukraine could have been given the status of guaranteed neutrality, but Putin had absolutely no, <laughs> no interest um, in uh, negotiating whatsoever. And that's because people in um, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Slovakia, Hungary, all the border areas there, they all know that it's not that Russia is afraid of NATO. It's actually the other way around. Uh, Russia has been intimidating all the countries around it militarily for some time, for example, which isn't important, often isn't uh, reported in the Western press. Uh, Russia routinely violates uh, the airspace of um, the countries all around it uh, with military aircraft. You know, we hear reports of China doing this over Taiwan recently. Russia does this all the time mm -hmm. in that part of the world. It also has stationed massive numbers of missiles on right on the border with Poland, uh, putting them right where they can rain destruction down on the little Baltic republics of uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Poland as well, if any of those countries should do something they don't like. So, uh, you know, the idea that Russian is, Russia is legitimately afraid of the West, it's just the opposite. Everybody on in that part of the world is terrified of Russia because mm -hmm. of what Russia has been doing, what they did to Georgia, right? Gobbling up half of Georgia, what mm -hmm. they did in gobbling up Crimea a few years ago at the cost of 14,000 lives, uh, and what they're doing to Ukraine now. So, you know, it's a, it's a smokescreen by Vladimir Putin. Um, and it, it, it covers up his real intention, which is, again, constantly stated publicly by Vladimir Putin and, 
and uh, everybody in that part of the world knows it, but the Western press tends to ignore it. And that's, Putin says several times that the, um, the biggest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, he should know, he was a member of the KGB, right? Um, uh, a great uh, Russian, uh, a great Christian values organization, as we all know. And uh, the, uh, let's remember that Ukraine um, and the little Baltic Republic were all formerly members of the Soviet Union. And the, even the Russian parliament a year ago voted that the, uh, at, at Vladimir Putin's behest that the withdrawal of the Ukraine, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and all the other little countries, which are now free democratic republics, their withdrawal from the Soviet Union is illegal and should be reversed. So that's what's really going on, folks. It's the absolute no. Vladimir Putin wants the Soviet Union back. That explains all his actions in Georgia, in Crimea, in Ukraine now, and what's next on the menu. That's especially Estonia and Latvia, the little Baltic republics, if he gets, he's able to uh, eat up Ukraine. That's what's really happening. And, uh, you know, the, uh, unfortunately, they're, uh, various news commentators, uh, a few politicians, mostly on the extreme right mm -hmm. uh, in America, the very extreme right, who have uh, you know picked up Russian propaganda reports and have not adequately researched them. Uh, you know, we have a, we have moral duty to help uh, in this situation. I think uh, as Americans and as Catholics, a moral duty to help Ukraine defend itself in every prudent way uh, that we can. Uh, and uh, I think it's absolutely clear. This is a, a black and white moral issue, not because Ukraine is a perfect country, not because Vladimir Zelensky is perfect. Uh, there's, ne there's never perfection on one side or the other, um, but because of the clear moral issue of violation of national sovereignty, of uh, democracy and freedom, and of human rights, and even the commission of genocide that's going on in that part of the world right now. Presumably, we stand uh, for the values I just mentioned, against mm -hmm. uh, against wars of aggression, against genocide, uh, we've got a moral duty to put uh, you know let our actions follow our words. Okay, let me let me play I don't know devil's advocate, Putin's advocate for a moment. Um, sure. I have heard it said though that given given the the moral gravity of abortion due to the sheer number of abortions that occur every year and even every day, that a pro-life country like Russia that is apparently, according to folk, um, institutionally or by law pro-life ought to be supported. And, and people seem to speak as though until there's a certain threshold of deaths caused by this war, that, that because abortion is such a grave moral issue, that they might consider at least not necessarily opposing Putin until that threshold is reached. What do you think of that argument from the numbers? Uh, I think it's a, a fallacious way of uh, engaging a moral reasoning. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, very akin to what we call utilitarianism, right? The mm -hmm. greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and uh, it, is it a good thing that Russia actually fairly recently, I, I think just in the last year or two, passed a strict anti-abortion law. Have, yes, it is. Um, but one right doesn't justify another massive wrong, right? And uh, also there are, you know, the abortion is, is a dish, different issue. It is a matter of 
life and death. Mm -hmm. And we definitely need to be as Catholics, very strongly pro-life, but we have democratic tools for dealing with that, uh, that issue in the West, right? Mm -hmm. We have, um, uh, we can by, uh, because we have democratic freedoms, we can lobby peacefully and nonviolently for an end to abortion, um, uh, prayer, petition, um, voting, we have all these means short of, uh, of violence for you know, advocating for the rights of the unborn. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do, and that's the right thing. And uh, at least, <laughs> at least there's a, there was, uh, it's pretty much evaporated now, there was a modicum of uh, uh, democracy in, in Russia before that, uh, Putin finally pretty much completely stamped it out now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which was, uh, so, you know, our, our patting Putin on the back and saying, well, well done, if this wasn't just for, uh, you know, you know, propaganda purposes for what he was about to do to Ukraine. Well done for, you know, protecting the rights of abortion, but our, um, that's, a, that's a separate issue, right? Uh, whether, uh, whether Putin is a, a aborting or not, a, a, whether Russia is aborting or not aborting children mm -hmm. does not excuse what they're doing in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we can't, um, we can't use one um, to, uh, let us off the moral hook for doing something about the other. Okay. So there's no anything in the name of the pro-life cause either. The whole notion of anything no, in the name I mean, of it the doesn't, particular good. It doesn't, think of it this way. It doesn't, it doesn't further the pro-life cause yeah. to, uh, to let uh, Vladimir Putin in, invade, stomp on, and, and even commit genocide in Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, much less to let him, let him reform the Soviet Union. That doesn't, you know, further the pro-life cause. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, if Russia's done pretty much, if they were going to do anything to further the pro-life cause, they've pretty much done it. Okay, fine. But that's not a, um, you know, that right, that right doesn't justify a massive wrong. And if we're in a, in a position as a country, let's say as Western countries, to help do something about stopping genocide, even if it's genocide by a so-called pro-life country, mm -hmm. then we have a moral duty to do that. Okay. It's interesting that they had that they had passed that law regarding the old Soviet states. Um, another thing I've seen in some of the Catholic press coverage of the current conflict is that there's apparently, and you'll have to explain this more to me, the the Russian world ideology. The I'm going to mangle the pronunciation. Ruski Mir. Um, notion that I guess the Russian Orthodox Patriarch is a big proponent of. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is there anything to this ideology? Yeah, I'm not a, a great expert on it, but basically, basically it's a kind of ethnocentric vision of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The idea, and it goes, stretches back in history, is that the primacy in the church um, belonged originally to Rome, the See of St. Peter, but um, but Rome apostatized by, by adding the, uh, a clause to the creed that the Holy Spirit um, uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son by adding that clause to the ancient Nicene Creed and by exalting the authority of the, of the Pope uh, over against other patriarchs, that Rome had actually committed heresy. And so it gave up its status as the uh, head of the church. And that status then passed to the Patriarch of Constantinople. But in 1453, as, as you might remember your history books, Constantinople was overrun and overtaken by the Muslims. 
So in that case, the primacy then passed to the head of the Orthodox world, which was Russia, right? Uh, now here, their justification gets a little fuzzy uh, because of course, Russia itself was overcome by the communists uh, in 1917. And, and if you're really an extreme uh, Russia world prop propagandist, you usually say, well, temporarily the head of the world Christianity passed actually to the small Russian Orthodox church in exile um, headquartered in upstate New York yeah. Un until <laughs> until uh, Russia threw off the communist yoke and then somehow it passed magically back to the Russian, the head of world Christianity um, passed back to the Russian Orthodox patriarch. Uh, but this is the idea, we'll get, I'll get a little more into this, but this is the idea of floating primacy, that the primacy of the church floats from one place to the other depending on world circumstances. Um, there's not a shred of evidence of, for this, either in scripture or in ancient tradition. Uh, in scripture, of course, primacy was given to Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. It's not, you are given to Peter temporarily and unless circumstances change, right? Uh, and the ancient and undivided church recognized that uh, Peter had journeyed to Rome and established uh, his permanent residency and his martyrdom there so that the, uh, the See of Rome was the head of all the churches. Now there were disputes between the East and West about how much authority that involved for the See of Rome, but there was never any dispute at all um, that the first See of Christendom was the See of Rome. Um, and so uh, the idea that you know the, the primacy of world Christianity now resides in Moscow is uh, is a, a fantasy, ethnocentric fantasy. But uh, there's an even deeper problem here, Chris, and mm -hmm. that's why I bring up this word ethnocentric. Uh, Christianity is not a religion that is carried throughout the world and led by a particular nation or ethnic group. That's Old Testament religion, not New Testament religion. Mm -hmm. That's the old dispensation. Uh, in the Old Testament, God chose a particular ethnic group, the Jewish people, right, uh, and the Jewish nation to be his chosen people to bear uh, his original revelation and keep it safe and until the coming of Messiah. But with the coming of Messiah, Christianity is not the property uh, or under the governance of a chosen people, a particular ethnic group. Uh, St. Paul, that's the right at the heart of St. Paul's preaching. St. Paul says in, in Galatians, in Christ, there's neither male nor females, slave nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Um, the church is, is simply not that way uh, for a particular nation or ethnic group to proclaim itself and proclaim its take on Christianity, its uh, particular take on moral values, on doctrine, as normative for um, not, only in, even, not only the whole world, but even just um, one region of the world uh, is, quite frankly, heresy. And uh, not not long ago, a, a vast array of Russian, or, sorry, of Eastern Orthodox scholars from all across the world, over 500 of them, uh, signed uh, uh, a message to this extent, including some Russian Orthodox theologians, saying that this is completely false. It's not in accord with Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and to appeal to it is is nothing short of heresy. Interesting. Do you think that this ideology has penetrated into Catholic circles at all? Well, I, I think there are a lot of um, Catholics who are very, very concerned about what's happened in the West, and rightly so. 
um, you know, this, the spread of abortion, uh, uh, gay marriage, um, the spread of um, euthanasia, uh, LGBTQ uh, kind of woke um, intolerance, if you will, uh, the spread of consumerism, materialism, moral relativism. Uh, gosh, we are in a, a, a real uh, moral and cultural freefall in the West. And uh, what's happened in Russia is that uh, they are proclaiming, of course, that they're against all these Western values. Uh, and to some extent, that, that's, that's fine. Um, and, but we, we have to, again, beware. It's a, it's a historical um, commonplace for uh, neo-fascist and fascist leaders to wrap themselves in uh, Christian banners, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, to cover up what they're, what they're really about. We saw this. Uh, Mussolini did this, right? Right before, in the decade before uh, World War II, the decades before World War II, he was the one who created the Vatican city-state and gave mm -hmm. the church its own independent city-state after uh, many years where the Vatican was in a very precarious legal position in Italy, right? Uh, and uh, we thought, well, you know, here's a guy, and he was, Mussolini was all talking about family values, Christian values, but of course he was just a thug, a dictator, uh, and he used, he manipulated uh, Christian and Catholic sentiment uh, in the early years of his reign in order to hide from what he was really doing. Um, and it's happened elsewhere too. It happened in the Philippines. Are Those who Catholics from the Philippines will know this very well. President Ferdinand Marcos made himself a dictator, an anti-communist dictator, and wrapped himself in all the trappings of Catholicism and the church to justify what he was doing, his violation of human rights. Um, so we've seen this over and over again. Even Hitler did this originally. Uh, you know, his, his early campaigns, the early years of his reign, were all about family values, the decline of the West. You know, the Christian and the, Jude the Christian, not Judeo-Christian. <laughs> didn't say that, but the Christian heritage of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, but quite frankly, it was all a lie. And in general, I think that was that's what's happening in Russia. And a lot of Russian people have been misled by uh, Putin. They've been manipulated. Uh, into thinking that that's what they're backing when they're backing Putin. Meanwhile, uh, he's he's uh, largely undermined, almost completely undermined democracy and mm -hmm. and uh, free press in Russia. Uh, gross violation of human rights uh, and uh, aggression, wars of aggression and and even genocide now against Russia's neighbors. But he he's doing just what Jesus said Satan does. Uh, you know, Satan. Uh, again, is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning, according to Jesus in John's gospel. Yeah. Uh, and if Satan can use Christian lies to blow a smokescreen over people's eyes, he was happy to do that. Uh, so, you know, we mustn't blame too much the Russian people because they're being uh, hoodwinked. But on the other hand, they have a moral responsibility to realize that basically they only have access to one side of the story, Putin's side. And that ought to raise their... Uh, doubts pretty majorly about uh, you know what's being what's being told to them. I can't help thinking of Saint John Paul II and all that he lived through, all of his many years of teaching, his heroic witness against both Nazis and communists of the Christian faith, and what what would he be saying now? What would he what would be his take on this situation? Do you think? Well, I think Pope Saint John Paul II. Uh, you know, it was definitely wanted to eradicate war um, as the great scourge of humanity. 
but he was also realistic about how um, some world powers, some terrorist groups, they they simply uh, will not listen to prayer and pleas and moral idealism. Right? Uh, they will, in fact, engage relentlessly in aggression. So uh, there was um, one instance, of course, where Pope St. Saint John Paul II actually called for military intervention by the Western, Western powers. That was in the situation in the Baltic countries where uh, Serbia, which was uh, a former communist and turned quasi-fascist state, under the dictator of Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, and does this script sound a little familiar to, it, mm -hmm. to you? Uh, he, um, uh, he was engaged in something people may remember called ethnic cleansing, which was the genocide of uh, uh, people in the other Baltic republics of Croatians and um, those in Bosnia, Herzegovina as well. And it, the, the situation was so horrific um, that Pope John Paul II called upon the Western powers in this case, to intervene militarily um, to stop the uh, genocide that was going on there. Uh, I believe he did the same with the Rwandan massacre. He said that those who have the ability to do something about it and don't do anything about it are partially morally responsible for what's going on. That doesn't mean I think that Pope John Paul II would have been imprudent and would have you know, called America and NATO to rush in, you know, rush to go to war. Uh, with Russia, of course, direct inter military intervention by uh, Russia and by NATO could uh, very well lead to World War III. So we're, we're right in being uh, prudent and cautious about the forms of support that we offer to Ukraine, and that's under ongoing discussion. But I, 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 I think there's little doubt that Pope John Paul II would have seen this situation as somewhat parallel to uh, what happened in the Balkans. And would have said that you know those who have the the ability to do something about this to put a stop to this massive violation of human dignity, uh, of national so sovereignty, um, of uh, principles of uh, peace and uh, brotherhood amongst nations, those who have the ability to do something about it are morally responsible with all prudence to step in and do it. Yeah. And so. In light of especially of the Holy Father's decision to consecrate Russia this Friday, um, we're doing this interview the week of the consecration of Russia and the Ukraine. Um, Our Lady at Fatima spoke of the errors of Russia. Is any of this misinformation, disinformation, Russian world ideology, the, the notion of being the third Rome among those errors, do you think? Uh, not, not really. I don't think so. Because the whole Russian... Uh, um, as you call it, Rusimir, I guess it's called Russian worldview that's being pushed by Putin and the Russian patriarch is really for local consumption. It's for, it's in order to convince Russian speaking peoples uh, of that part of the world to rally to Vladimir Putin's call. It's very interesting that most of the Russian speaking people of Ukraine have not rallied to the support of Vladimir Putin in this invasion. So it hasn't worked in, in that case. Um, but um, uh, you know, it, it because it's so ethnocentric, it really doesn't have much appeal uh, beyond, you know, Russian-speaking areas of Central and Eastern Europe. Hmm. So I, I don't think majorly that was what uh, Our Lady had in mind. I think what she had in mind more was Russia's errors with regard to communism and, and tyrannical government in general. Okay. Right? And, and uh, that, was the, that was the thing uh, on her mind. So, uh, but, you know, certainly I think that... Uh, 
uh, bringing this whole situation to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and certainly in the spirit of what Our Lady was asking for at Fatima. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need her to intervene, intervene uh, by her prayers and intercession. She's already praying for us, of course, but um, uh, by our prayers, we can open the doors even further to what she wants to do here yep. to bring peace. And maybe I can say something more about Chris if we've got time, because I, I think there's a bit of confusion about when, when Catholics think about, you know, Fatima and the conversion of Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we, we tend to be, I think, a little confused about this. I'm going to write about this online uh, in the months to come, but I'll just give, give you a little preview about this because I'm going to be writing, uh, actually, there'll be a, a series going up on the Sacred Heart. Uh, it'll be a long series. It runs throughout the summer, but toward the end of it, uh, I'm going to talk about Fatima and about our, our Lady promising that, you know, through the consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart and devotion to her Immaculate Heart, that uh, Russia will be converted. And I think we we get the, uh, sometimes get the wrong idea about this. That means that, oh, Rus the Russian Orthodox people are gonna realize that they were wrong all the, all the time and just become Roman Catholics. Well, I don't think if you look carefully, that's how reconciliation between Christian peoples really happens, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think ultimately it's in our Lord's plan for uh, Russian Christians to be reconciled with the Holy See for their, uh, and that's what Our Lady was referring to, but uh, when, when major groups of Christians return to unity with, with Rome, they come bringing their gifts with them. And, and the great tragedy of what's going on in Russia now mm -hmm. is, um, through, is that Russian Orthodox Christianity actually has some beautiful gifts to author, offer the rest of the world, not, um, not the, the, uh, the Russian mirror that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, they've actually, it, it's part of uh, Satan's strategy here to, wash over the true gifts that Russian Orthodox Christianity has. To, if you go back to the, the 19th century, say to Dostoevsky and the Slavophile movement, uh, there were two key words that the Russians used and that they talked about what they felt, the gifts that God had given to Russian Christians that they could share with the rest of the world. One of them was called the principle of Sobernost, mm -hmm. which is that unity in that church happens through consensus by the Holy Spirit, true unity doesn't happen by, you know, some uh, offices or ministries, you know, oppressing others or authoritarian control. Um, it happens through the building of consensus in the Holy Spirit. This is something I think of what Pope Francis is talking about with synodality, right? The recovery of the principle of synodality and, the, and Vatican II with collegiality. Um, uh, we're, we're beginning to get back to that and and that's, uh, uh, but it's something right at the heart of Russian Christianity. Uh, a second principle is one um, I wrote my master's thesis about the principle of kenosis. Uh, and that's um, self-sacrifice and, and uh, self-emptying, literally self-sacrifice uh, for the sake of Christ. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting that the Slavophile movement in the 19th century, which is the love of Slavic culture, literally, and which was propagated by great Russian Orthodox writers and thinkers like Dostoevsky, uh, it's very interesting that they have the very opposite ideology of Russian, of the Russian world ideologies being propagated by Putin and the Russian patriarch now. Yeah. Slavophiles were against the spread of the Russian empire in Eastern and Central Europe because it violated to them Russia's great gift, the principle of kenosis. Hmm. So the Russian Orthodox uh, actually have to see through all the propaganda. They will eventually. 
and realize that it's distorting even the great gifts that the Russian Christians have been given to offer to the Catholic Church and the world when they do in our Lord's time and for Our Lady's prayers when they do come back into union with the seat of Rome. So, you know, it looks like Satan's having a field day, messing everything up and messing up everybody's heads. It's fascinating. Our Lady is stronger than Our Lady is stronger than this. Our, our Lord's Sacred Heart will win in the end. Certainly. Uh, no matter how confused things look at the moment. Certainly. Thank you so much for being willing to share, Robert. This has been the conversation with Dr. Robert Stackpole, author of Divine Mercy and Divine Justice. To order Divine Mercy and Divine Justice, please visit shopmercy.org. This has been Sparks of Mercy. Thanks for listening. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Jesus, I trust in you. I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Thank you.